Well, good morning, Seabreeze. It's always fun to have an introduction like that. Pretty exciting. Uh, my name is Elliot. I'm one of the pastors. And what we are doing this summer is we are going through some of the top movies at the theater, and we're trying to figure out what is the main message these movies communicate to us, and then we're comparing that with what God says about how we're supposed to live in the Bible. So obviously today we're looking at this movie, Independence Day Resurgence. And in this movie, the aliens are back. It's been 20 years since we defeated them in 1996, and this time they come back stronger and with more resolve. They actually bring a ship with them that's 3,000 miles wide to take over the earth and conquer and take our natural resources. And when they come, it becomes really apparent quickly in the movie that we are outmatched and overpowered. And if we are going to win against this foe that we face, the only way we can do that is if we are united. And actually, the director of the movie, in an interview, he talks about that. And he, he said what he wanted to do is not just make a film full of cool computer graphics and talking about aliens coming to earth, but he wanted to make a movie that told the story of men and women all over the world coming together and standing as one. That was one of his goals in this story. And he talks about how that's actually a dream that he has. One of his dreams is that people would be united. We wouldn't be divided. There wouldn't be division, but that we would stand together as one. And I think an obvious reason that this is a dream for him is because it doesn't take much analysis of humanity to realize that we are we are not united. There are all different kinds of things that are pulling us apart in different directions. I mean, a minute ago in Katie's prayer, she prayed for some of the things that are going on throughout the world, all the, the tragedy and the examples of how people are in conflict with one another and taking that out on each other. I mean, there are some horrendous examples that we have seen recently if you're keeping up with what's going on. And so this idea of unity, the reason it's a dream for the director and the reason it's a dream for a lot of people is because it's so rare. It's just not something that we experience. And it's not just kind of on a social level or even politics, but if we boil it down to our relationships with one another, what we realize is even with the people that we're the closest to, the people that we love the most, what we realize is that we rub against each other, we create friction, that friction creates conflict, and then instead of there being unity in our relationships, over time, usually what people do is they start to move apart. They start to distance themselves from each other. There's some kind of break in that relationship and people head in different directions. So even in our own relationships, we we don't just have to look at the news to realize this. With the people we love the most, we experience this division and this disunity. What's interesting when you read through the Bible is there's a point where Jesus prays for his followers. And when he prays for his followers, one of the things he prays for is he prays that we would experience unity. In John 17... It's a chapter, the entire chapter is Jesus' prayer. And it comes at an interesting point in Jesus' life here on earth because it's just hours before he's going to go to the cross and give his life for us. So he goes to his father and he prays for his followers. And this is what he says, John 17, picking it up in verse 20. It says, My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. So what Jesus prays here, prays for here, is really fascinating. And it's worth it for us to unpack it. And so in the preceding verses to where we picked this up, he's just prayed for the people that followed him while he was 
alive here physically on earth. He's just prayed for the people that walked and talked with him. Then he shifts gears and he prays for us, and he prays for those who will believe in me through their message. That's us. We're the ones who have come to know who Jesus is because of the witness of the people that walked and talked with him while he was on earth. So he shifts and he prays for us. And then what he prays for us is really fascinating. He, he actually says it two times. He says that they may be one. Repeats it two times. He's praying that we would be united, that we would stand together. There would be oneness in our relationships. Not that we would be kind of off on our Lone Ranger adventure to follow Jesus. Not that we would be following Jesus in isolation, doing whatever we want to do. But in our relationships and in our shared goal, we would come together and we would stand together as one. We would be united. That's what Jesus is praying for us in this passage. But what's interesting about this, especially when you kind of dive into the language and what he's, what he's saying here is he, when he says they may be one, he's pointing out the fact that it has potential to happen, but it's no guarantee. There's no guarantee that when a group of Christians get together, when God's people get together, that there's going to be unity. It doesn't just happen. The potential is there for it to happen, but it's going to take a lot of work on our part. It's, it's kind of like the Lakers basketball team right now. If you follow sports at all, if you follow the Lakers, you know that this last year, the Lakers, they were the second worst team in the NBA. Granted, it was Kobe's farewell tour, and so nobody was that hard on them, but they were the second worst team in the NBA. The worst record, I believe, in franchise history. But they have a whole lot of potential, because through the last few years, through the draft and some other things, they've acquired a lot of young talent. So there's a lot of potential for this team for the future. But if this team is going to realize that potential, if they're going to become like the Lakers of old, there's a whole lot of hard work that they have to put in. Each one of those guys has to spend countless hours perfecting their craft, figuring out how not to be selfish on the court, but how to work together as one so that they can be united, so they can become what we expect the Lakers to be. Same thing for us as Christ followers. There's a whole lot of potential but there's a whole lot of work that we have to do. The potential is there because of what Christ has done. See, what Christ has done for us is in dying for us, he offered us forgiveness for what we had done in the past. And not just did he give us forgiveness, because forgiveness kind of puts you on a neutral footing, but he didn't just give us forgiveness. The Bible used the term justified. That's what he's done for us. He's justified us. That means that from God's perspective, God views us as people who have never violated his law. So it's not just that God kind of wiped our slate clean. He actually put us in the positive because of what Jesus has done. And then what Jesus did is he sent the Holy Spirit to come and live within us. So we're not just down here kind of figuring it out on our own, kind of bumping through the darkness. We actually have God within us who's empowering us and giving us the desire that pleases him. See, that is what Jesus has done for us. And because of that, we have a ton of potential. But if we're going to realize that potential and if we're going to stand united... That means that each one of us has to take responsibility. We have a lot of work to do. It really falls on us. He says that they may be one. Not that it's a guarantee, but it falls on us to, based on what he's done and through the power he gives, take that and work together. The result of what happens when God's people stand together as one is also worth noting. Jesus, again, says this two times, kind of in a slightly different way. He says, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. And then again, he says, then the world will know that you sent me. That's the result. When God's people come together and they stand as one, people know and then they come to believe that Jesus is who the Bible says he is. He is God in flesh come to meet our biggest need. The only way we can experience life is through him. 
That's what happens when God's people are united. That to me is so fascinating. How is it possible that when people stand united, that's the result? Well, the only thing I can think of to explain this is unity, true unity, is so rare. I'm not just talking about people that get along for the weekend, but I'm talking about a group of people that come and work together as one over a long period of time. That is so rare that it's shocking when people see it and experience it. And when they see God's people working as one, it's going to cause them to have to ask the question, what in the world is going on here? This doesn't happen anywhere else in the world. What in the world is going on here? That's when we have the opportunity to open our mouths and say, it's because of what Jesus did. It starts with the visible witness of living together and being one, being united like God wants us to be. And then that gives us the opportunity to open our mouths and verbally tell people, well, this is what Jesus did. That's how it results in people coming to know and then believing that the Bible, he is who the Bible says he is. So if we're going to achieve this, if we're going to be one, if we're going to stand together united, what do we have to do? That's what I want to look at this morning. So what I have is I have four practices for us in our relationships. How in our relationships are we to relate to one another if we're going to stand as one? Because that's what unity is going to take. There's a specific way that we have to interact with each other if we're going to stand as one. I've got four practices for this. And the reason that we're using the word practices is because this is going to take repeated effort. It's not just a one and done. It's not just you apply this one time and boom, I got it figured out, we're good. No, it's all the time, over and over, daily, sometimes moment by moment. You have to choose these practices if we're going to realize our potential and experience unity. So the first practice to experience relational unity is love. This is the first thing we have to do. We have to have true love in our relationships if we're going to be united. Now, a major challenge to this for us that we face is that we are a culture of consumers. And what consumers do is consumers are focused on the product and personal use. How does the product affect me? How can I use this product for my benefit? So what we do is we approach things and we ask the question, how does this product make me feel? What does this product do to improve my life? How does it benefit me? And if the product doesn't benefit me, or it doesn't, we don't think it improves our lives or whatever, or if a better product comes along, then we'll move on to a new product, because that's what consumers do. And the sad thing in relationships is what we've done is we've really degraded our love for one another to consumer love, where now we approach relationships and we ask the question, well, how does the other person make me feel? What do I get out of this? How do they benefit me? And just like with a consumer and a product, if we don't see that benefit or if we're not getting the feeling that we want or we don't like the way things are going, then we'll quickly move on to something else. And an example of this is um, one of the, there's a whole lot of research out right now on why young adults are so slow to commit in relationships. And a lot of what's written on this explains how they're using this consumer love approach. They're approaching each other with this idea of there might be a better product out there. So why would I commit? if a better product's gonna come along. So I'll just wait until there's a better product. It's, it's sad as it is to say it, we've really, instead of treating each other like human beings created in God's image, really we've exchanged that and now we love each other with consumer love. So because of this confusion, there's a passage in 1 John that helps clear this up. This is what it says in 1 John chapter 3, starting in verse 16. It says, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech but with actions and in truth. 
So the passage starts and it gives us a definition. It says, this is what love is. If you want to know what love is, look what Jesus did. Real love is sacrificial. Jesus went out of his way. He inconvenienced himself for us. It was never about what we could do for him. It was only about the fact that he knew he was the only one that could meet our biggest need. Real love, the definition of real love, is sacrificial. But then the passage goes on, and it gives us some instruction. It says, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. It's not saying, you know, in the ideal situation you'll do this. It's saying this is actually your obligation. If you've received Christ's love, the expectation is that you'll do for other people what Christ did for you. You ought to do this. This is what you are supposed to do. Then it moves on from the instruction, just to make sure we're really clear. And it gives us an example. What it says in the example is it says, If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Notice how in the example, the example is not of one person physically giving their life in place of another person. That's not the example. The reason is because probably we're not going to have the chance to get that, to do that. Chances are you're not going to have the opportunity to exchange your life for somebody else. But you know what you probably are going to have the opportunity to do? You're probably going to have something materially, something physical, some resource that somebody else needs. Somebody, you can help somebody. And what it says here is if you have material possessions, if you have the resources to help and you see a member of God's family who's in need, and the the idea of don't take pity is you close your heart from taking action. It's not a, not, don't take pity doesn't have the idea of, oh, I'm so sorry for you. Not taking pity is, you know, I see what's going on here and I'm going to refuse to act. It simply asks a question, how can the love of God be in that person? Then he moves on and he gives a summary. And what he says is, dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. And what it's saying is the real test of our love, if you want to know what real love is, the real test of your love is are you acting for the benefit of somebody else? Are you actually sacrificing for their good? And does it line up with truth? Not just based on how you think you're supposed to love, but truth here meaning what God says in his word. So the real test of love is not what comes out of your mouth, but do your actions reflect the way that God wants us to treat people? That's what real love is. Real love is sacrificial. Without real sacrificial love, we're never going to have unity. At Seabreeze, there's an action statement that we have that informs us how to practice love. And the action statement is, put the goals and interests of others above your own. Now, if I just get up here this morning and for 45 minutes or 35 minutes, whatever, I just say over and over, love people, love people. I just only say two words for my entire message. You guys will walk away and you'll know the importance of loving people. I'll have drilled it into your head. But most likely, you and me included, we'll revert back to our consumer love. So to make sure that we know how we're supposed to love, to inform us what real love looks like, we use an action statement. And we say, put the goals and interests of others above our own. There's actually an interesting example in the movie where it looks like the aliens have almost won. Actually, part of the quote is in the trailer that we just watched, but it looks like the aliens are getting ready to win and man is going to lose. And there's a scene where the former president, the president that helped defeat the aliens the first time, He is having a conversation with somebody, and this is what he says. He says, we convinced an entire generation that this is a battle that we could win. We sacrificed for each other, no matter what the cost, and that's worth fighting for. See, in the movie, what you have is you have 20 years of people coming together and sacrificing for each other, and that was the foundation for their unity that gave them the opportunity to defeat the aliens. The foundation for our unity is us loving each other by sacrificing. 
without sacrificial love for other people, there's no way we're ever going to be united. The next practice for relational unity is trust. This is the next relational practice. If unity is going to be achieved, there has to be trust. Now, trust is incredibly valuable. And one of the reasons that it's so valuable is because of how rare it is. I mean, in our relationships, what's common, what happens time and time again is we depend on people. We look for people to help in some way. And they let us down. They don't come through. Maybe even they fail us. That is our common experience in relationships. And because of that, we don't trust very much in relationships. So we'll, we'll put walls up, walls that'll kind of keep people out so they can't get close to us. Or what we'll do is we'll just be really slow for trust to grow. Now, because trust is so rare in a relationship, it, it's kind of like gold. Gold can take years and years to acquire, but then in just a few moments, it can be stolen. Trust is the same way. Trust is incredibly valuable. It can take years to grow trust in a relationship, but then that trust can be lost in just a moment. So what does it take to grow trust in a relationship? Well, at Seabreeze, we use the action statement, live an honest and open life before others. This is what we do to grow trust. We live an honest and open life. The word honest has the idea of you are trusted in what you say. What comes out of your mouth can be trusted. That's the idea of what it means to be honest. This is what it says in Ephesians 4.25. says, Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood. Speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. So what it's saying is if, if you're a Christ follower, you, we are all members of one body. We need to speak truthfully to one another. What, what happens if one part of my body stops communicating or starts lying to another part of my body? Well, in, in medical terms, that's referred to as a neurological disease. What's going to happen is loss of coordination, maybe seizures, maybe paralysis, because the members of my body are not being truthful. It's the same way in our relationships. See, in our relationships, trust is what links us together. If you could think of what binds us together in a relationship, trust is what binds us together. Truth is what strengthens that connection. Without truth, that connection is going to be weakened or it's going to break. Same way with our physical body when it comes to the different members communicating. In our relationships, there has to be trust. That's what binds us. And then there has to be truth. If, if there's lying, if we're dishonest, if we're hiding stuff, that trust will be broken and we won't be able to function together as one. The next word is the word open. We've got to be honest, but then we have to be open. Open has the idea of you're trusted in what you reveal. Someone can actually get to know you based on what you reveal about yourself. Now, I don't know if you've ever known this type of person. I don't know if you've ever known a person that you, the only way you can get information out of them is if you ask them questions. You have to just sit there and just kind of pepper them with questions to get them to say anything. And then even when they say something, it's kind of vague, and it's just one-word answers. And it's not really, you don't really know if it's truthful. It, I, don't, I don't, I really, even though I asked this person and they gave me this answer, I really have no idea what's going on in their life. Do you trust those people? No, you don't know them. We, we don't trust people that we don't know very well. And so if we want to grow trust, we've got to be open. What about somebody who voluntarily shares with you information? They voluntarily share with you something that's going on in their life. Well, you have opportunity to trust them because now you start to get to know who they are. So if we're going to have trust, we have to be open. We've got to be open and so people can get to know us based on what we reveal. But then we've also got to be honest. We've got to be honest with what's going on in our lives. An important note that I want to make here is in our relationships, when it comes to growing trust, trust will not grow without love. It's kind of like gardening. My wife and I, from time to time, will try our hands at gardening 
When it comes to the gardens that we grow, we prefer succulents because they're harder to kill than some of these other plants. But that's what we've got in our backyard right now. What I've learned is you can give a plant the right amount of sun and the right amount of water, but if that plant is in bad soil, that plant's going to die. Same thing with trust. If trust is not in the soil of love, it won't grow. In our relationships, it's the fact, it's the knowledge of we are putting the goals and interests above our own. Both parties are doing that. When there's that love, that sacrificial love, that trust has the opportunity to grow. You can be open and honest all day long, but if there's not love, the trust isn't going to grow. So it starts with love, and then we move to growing trust when it comes to relationships and pursuing unity. The third relational practice is input. We need people who are watching over our blind spots. When it comes to moving through life, it's kind of like driving a car. When you're driving a car, you have blind spots. Everybody's aware of this. That's why we have mirrors. There's stuff that we can't see, stuff going on around us. Even some of the new car makers, what they're doing is they've released technology that helps people be aware of what's going on, helps people see what they can't see. And then in some situations, it helps people react when they can't react. See, in relationships, the reason that we bump into one another is we, we're not aware of everything that's going on. It's just like in a car. In a car, we get in car wrecks because we can't see 360 degrees. We don't know everything. And even there are times where even then when we can't see, we, we can't react in time. We didn't have enough time to process the information, so then we get into a wreck. On your way home, it's not your intention to get into a wreck. But if you get into a wreck, it's because you weren't aware of what was going on or you couldn't react in time. Exact same thing in our relationships. It's not our intention to cause this relational damage and wreck into one another. But we can't see everything. So we need people who will give us input. There's a passage on this, Hebrews 3, 12 and 13. This is what it says. It says, See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. So it starts and it says, See to it. Take action. This is your responsibility. It's on you if this is going to happen. And what does it say? It says that our hearts are in a natural state of decay. We have these fickle hearts where one moment we have the ability to make a strong commitment. This is what God has said. I know what the truth is. I'm going to be obedient to the truth. But then in the next moment, our hearts can turn and go in the other direction. So what are we supposed to do because of these fickle hearts that we have? Are we just supposed to, you know, muster up all this energy and determination and just, I'm going to do the right thing, I'm going to do the right thing, I'm going to do the right thing? That's not what it says. What it says is we're supposed to receive regular encouragement. What does that mean? Does that mean that like five times a day you need friends to text you and tell you something encouraging? I mean, that would be nice if people did that. You know, hey, you know, just by the way, here's some encouraging information I wanted to pass along to you, just to encourage you for your day. That would feel nice, but actually the idea of this word encourage in the Greek, which this was originally written in, the idea is to come alongside and to warn. In other words, it's watch out. We need people in our lives who are coming alongside and saying, just like when driving a car, hey, you can't see what's going on here. Watch out. You're getting ready to get into a wreck. Hey, you're not aware that there's a car in the lane next to you. If you, if you change lanes right now, you're, there's going to be a collision. So watch out what you're doing. You're, you're not aware that if you keep doing this, you're going to ruin this relationship. So watch out. You're not aware that something's coming ahead, so let me help you react in time. Watch out. We need people who come alongside us, give us input. They encourage. They help us be aware of our blind spots. At Seabreeze, the action statement that we have for this that informs us how to practice this is give and receive scriptural correction. 
It informs us how we practice giving input to other people. We give and receive scriptural correction. It's, it's two-sided. We're not just the ones always speaking into other people's lives, and it's not just that we're always getting input from others, but both people in the relationship are giving and receiving the scriptural correction. Now, a note I want to make here. If you're thinking about giving or receiving, well, I guess just giving, if you're thinking about giving input, here's two important questions to ask. The first question to ask, is this because I love this person? Am I speaking into their lives, giving them input because I love them? Because sometimes what can happen with us is we're really giving the input for selfish reasons. Maybe what they're doing annoys us. And it's not wrong, but we just want them to stop. So we're going to give them input. Well, that's really a selfish motivation. That's not because I love and want what's best for the other person. I just want them to stop. So I'm going to give them this input. Or maybe it's out of self-righteousness. I'm so much better. I have so much more information. I'm so holy compared to this person that they just need to know this wisdom that I'm going to bestow upon them in this moment. So we've got to make sure, am I doing this because I actually love them? Or is there something in it for me attached to it? We've got to ask ourselves that question before we give it because the input, it's got to have love. The next one is we need to ask the question, is there trust? How do you respond if an unfriendly, rude person who you don't trust gives you input? I mean, if they're rude to you, they're mean to you, they're not the nicest person, they come along and they give you input. Even if they're right, we usually don't respond very well in those situations. Have we done what it takes to develop trust in this relationship? Have we kind of bridged that gap so they can know who we are? They know what we struggle with. They know what's going on with us. Or are we just kind of going up, no trust, no love. Here, boom, let me, let me tell you something that will change your life. Chances are that's not going to go very well. We start with love, we move to trust, and then we give and receive scriptural correction. If we don't do this, if we're just giving and receiving scriptural correction without there being love and trust, we've just created a critical environment. And do people unite when there's criticism? Do you like it when people are criticizing you? I don't like it when people are criticizing me. So if we're going to unite, we start with love, we go to trust. We have to give input because there are blind spots. But we want to be careful that we're not creating a critical environment. The fourth relational practice is forgiveness. Forgiveness is what gives us a chance to have peace, which is essential for unity. See, if we're going to reach unity, what we're going to have to do is we have to work together. See, remember what the end goal is that Jesus talked about, that people would know and believe. That means we have to come together. We have to work together. There's got to be love. There's got to be trust. There's got to be input. There's going to be a whole lot of interaction between all of us. And if you've ever been a part of a group, you know this. It's only a matter of time, unfortunately, before somebody says something or does something that hurts you or you don't like. Or maybe you're the person that it's only a matter of time before you say something or you do something that hurts someone or they don't like. And it's at that point that we have the opportunity to forgive. Because if we let that hurt go, what that'll do is that'll drive a wedge between us and we'll never experience unity. So we have to practice forgiveness if we're going to experience unity in our relationships. At Seabreeze, the action statement we have for this that informs us how to practice forgiveness is we clear up relationships. doesn't matter whose fault it was. We take initiative and we do what it takes to clear up that relationship, to, to fix that break. This is what it says in Colossians 3, starting in verse 12. It says, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. That's what we're supposed to do. That's the example. The example is what God has done for us. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. Now, the challenge for us when it comes to 
conflict or trouble in relationships, the challenge is often what we'll do is we'll assign blame in a situation and we'll give it percentages. We really play this percentage game. We'll get into conflict with somebody. Well, they were 85% in the wrong. I'm only 15% in the wrong. And because they're 85% in the wrong, this is more their fault than it is mine. Yeah, I did 15% of it, but I wouldn't have done that 15% if they wouldn't have done the 85. So that justifies my 15%. And it also prevents me from having to go and clear up the relationship because they're more in the wrong than I am. I do this all the time myself. Actually, what's interesting to me, the other person almost always has a higher percentage of being at fault than I do. In our relationships, that's what we do. We're playing this percentage game, and it keeps us from clearing up these relationships. But an interesting question, one that I've had to ask myself and is incredibly convicting, what percentage was God in the wrong when he cleared up the relationship with us? Remember what the passage says? It says, forgive as the Lord forgave you. What percentage was he in the wrong when he cleared up the relationship with us? Zero percent. He did nothing wrong. We're the one that caused the whole problem to begin with. But who took all the initiative? He took all the initiative. He did all the work to clear it up. That's the example. So if we want to experience unity, we have to stop playing this percentage game. When something's wrong, we've got to take the initiative and go do what it's going to take to clear up that relationship so that there can be forgiveness, so that there can be unity. Back to what Jesus said in John chapter 17. Again, he, he explains what the result will be two times if his people are united. He says, so that the world may believe that you have sent me then the world will know that you have sent me. That's what the goal is. The goal is that people will come to understand through our unity that Jesus Christ is real, that he was sent here from the Father. He is God in flesh, and he is the only one that can give the answer to the biggest question we will ever ask. He is the only one that can meet our biggest need, the only one that can forgive us and give us true life. That is the result of our unity. The potential is there because of what he's done. But it falls on us. We're the ones that have to take the action. We're the ones that have to choose to love, to put the goals and interests of other people above our own. We're the ones that have to choose to trust. We have to live honest and open with other people. We're the ones that have to be humble and realize, hey, I've got blind spots and I need input. I need to give and receive scriptural correction. We're the ones that have to realize that if I let this hurt go, it's going to drive a wedge between us. So I have to be the one that acts and practices forgiveness and clear up the relationship. When we do that, when God's people do that, the, the potential we have to make an impact on the world around us is amazing. But if we're going to realize that potential, it starts with us taking action and relating to one another the way that God wants us to. I've got a couple of next steps for you this morning. These will help you practice some of the things that we talked about. These are at the bottom of your message insert, the first next step is to choose a relational practice to work on. Which one of these four relational practices that we've talked about could you work on this week? Choose one of these action statements. What's that going to look like for you? The next next step is to explore the hard attitudes. If you've been around Seabreeze for any period of time, you know we have seven statements that really kind of summarize the way that the Bible wants us to both interact with one another and also relate to God's church. And so these seven statements, I've, I've taught on the first four this morning. The first four of these action statements are statements we describe as the hard attitudes. These are going to be our approach to life. I'd encourage you to go and explore more what the Bible says. It is overwhelming the amount of verses and information the Bible says about how important these are when it comes to relating to one another. I taught on the first four. There are three more. 
You can learn more about these on our website. Also, there are some more message series um, on the listening section of the website where you could learn more about these hard attitudes. And then the final um, next step that I have for you today actually has to do with our invest and invite card. There's a little card that looks like this. It's on the tables as you walk out. Some of you have already grabbed these. So for you, this is a reminder. For others, what we're trying to do over the summer, because of this goal that we have for people to know and then believe who Jesus is, we're working towards unity, but the end goal is for people to come to know who he is. What we want to do is we want to be investing in people. We also want to be inviting them. So we're encouraging people to just write down three names, people who are not involved in a church, who they could come to know who Jesus is through our investment inviting them. We've got a ton of opportunities. Joanna mentioned the summer nights we've got going on. Those are a ton of fun. Those have been packed. They've grown each week that we've done it. Encourage more and more people to come. Also this weekend, we've got the women's game night. We've got the men's breakfast. Great opportunities for you to be investing and inviting people. So I'd encourage you to grab one of these cards on your way out. So now, as I wrap up the service, what I want to do is I actually want to invite a group of people up here on stage. If you've been here over the summer, you know that we are um, sending out mission teams. So this week, we're sending out another one of our mission teams. So I want to go invite that team up on stage. Lance Unruh, he's one of our assistant pastors. He's going to be leading this team of individuals. And what they're doing is they're actually going to go and work with one of our local partners. We've sent some teams to various parts of the world. This team of individuals is going to go and be working in Anaheim this week at our local partner, Voice of the Refugees. What Voice of the Refugees does is they work with people who are over here from other countries. They're seeking asylum from their country. They've been given access to the United States. And Voice of the Refugees helps them in many different ways, economically, socially, and spiritually, give them what they need to kind of get on their feet and acclimate to this new environment that they're in. So what this team is going to be doing when they go up there and work is one of the things is they're going to be working with a lot of kids. A whole lot of kids are coming over with these families. Kids, they need to hear about who Jesus is and experience some love. And then another thing they're going to be doing is they're going to be working with an English as a second language program to help these people just get more and more acclimated with the United States. An amazing opportunity we have where God has literally brought people from all over the world to our doorstep. And it's a very small test, a very small step for us to just go out and love them let them experience what we've experienced through Jesus. So team, we're excited. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to step back here so I don't block April. <laughs> team, we're excited. Yeah, let's give them a round of applause. <laughs> Seabreeze, if you'll join me, I'll pray for this team. They leave tomorrow, and then they'll be getting back on Wednesday. It's a short trip, but they can be very effective in the time that they have. So if you'll join me, we'll pray for this team as we send them out. Father God, I thank you for each one of these individuals and their um, willingness to take time out of their schedule and to go and serve. And just like we've already talked about this morning, I pray for the unity of this team. I pray for um, their love for one another. They would be sacrificing. I pray that there would be trust. They would be able to rely on each other, that they would be humble, realizing that they do need input. And when that's needed, they would give it with love. I pray also, Father, that if they do bump heads, which is almost inevitable when you have a group of people in a close environment, I pray that they would be quick to clear up that relationship. I pray that testimony of unity seen by the people that they're serving would cause people to realize there's something different going on than we've experienced. God, the people that they're serving, you know better than us. They're coming from parts of the world that are torn apart with war and division and all kinds of evil and wickedness of man. So God, I pray that for this period of time, whether here working with Voice of the Refugees, those individuals would experience a love like they've never experienced. And that would give people the opportunity to tell them who Jesus is. I pray for the kids that they're interacting with. I pray they would really bring joy into those kids' lives, 
Pray for the parents as they're helping them learn English and relating to them in various ways. Pray you give them a lot of opportunities to help people understand who Jesus is and what he's all about. We thank you for this team. We pray for their safety this week. You should bless them as they go. In Jesus' name, amen.